So tonight we're going to start in the book of Colossians. And as, as you think back over the last nine months, we really went on an incredible, incredible ride. Um, Job, Habakkuk, Ecclesiastes, a series on thankfulness, an Advent series. And um, a lot of that put us in the Old Testament and brought us back to the new in Advent. And um, we're, we're back in the New Testament with the book of Colossians. We've been a, really been on an incredible ride. And I think, just to put it all in context, if you go all the way back to March when all the craziness was going on, we were finishing, uh, well, we didn't, we never finished it. We, we were in the middle of a series on discipleship, and uh, we put the last part of that series on hold and went into the book of Job, and all of that was about giving East Rock Community Church just the sort of leading from the Holy Spirit that we can endure these trials and seek the face of God. When we were in Habakkuk, it was about, hey, God, I don't understand what's going on. Help me trust you anyway. And in Ecclesiastes, it was about asking really big questions and finding really big answers when things seemed hopeless. Uh, here we are in Colossians, and Colossians is all about putting your focus on the supremacy and excellency of Jesus. And I think we're right back where we started a few months ago in seeking to to inspire and challenge and focus the congregation known as East Rock Community Church. And I don't think actually there's a, a more, a combination of succinctness and excellency than there is in Colossians. Maybe right next to it would be Ephesians, but it's three chapters longer. Or next to that would be Romans, which is 10 chapters longer than Ephesians. So to get a power-packed focus on Jesus, we're going to look at the book of Colossians. Our main idea tonight is kind of long because we're introducing a whole book, and um, I think it's worth writing down, actually. Uh, Paul writes to the Colossians to remind them of the centrality and the supremacy of Christ and to help them understand their position in Christ and how that should change the way they think, speak, relate to others, and see the world. It's almost like saying this is going to change everything. The main idea is God is so good that he changes everything. And for some people, there are areas where you go, oh, man, oh, me. And the other areas where you go, hallelujah, God, get in there, because I'm tired of that stuff myself. Well, trust me, that's what Colossians does. As we read this short letter, as we read it, we ought to remember this, that we get one of the absolute greatest descriptions of Christ that you can find anywhere. We get that from a man who is in a damp, dark prison cell. Now, growing up, I don't ever recall watching a whole episode or tuning in on purpose, but I remember sometimes seeing that show, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Y'all remember seeing that? Uh, the guy who did it, I don't know where he was from, Great Britain or somewhere, but you know, I don't know where he was. He had a funny accent, though. And he, lifestyles of the rich and famous. Here we are in downtown Modesto, California, wherever he was. I don't know. And I used to see that, and I go, wow. You know, who would get enough money to use it that way? Or well, if I had that much money, is that what I would do with it? I would probably have, like, a collection of tractors or something. Lifestyles of the ignorant and country. I'd be on that show. Right? And they would show these people, and they would always be happy and smiling. I'm thinking, well, it's easy to be happy and smiling when you're seated in the lap of luxury. 
So when we read this letter, we're getting this from a guy who is in adverse circumstances. And it makes me think, you know, if Paul makes a prison his pulpit, then who are we not to make our circumstances a pulpit to? It inspires me in that way. Some of you young people, you're battling, what do I do with my life? Student loans, going to school, um, uh, what, what in the world is going on with COVID? You know, make it your pulpit. Some of you uh, middle-aged people, you're feeling the tug of caring for parents and caring for kids and helping your kids transition into young adult years and watching after grandkids. And, and I mean, you, you're just seeing all that and you're, and you're sort of saying, uh, why me? I, I'm saying I think Colossians will encourage you to make it your pulpit. Uh, some of you guys in the twilight of your years, you're trying to figure out how to calm down and God's trying to figure out how to stir you up. And he wants you to make, uh, you know, slowing down at work. That's your opportunity to speed up in your ministry and to make that phase of life your pulpit too. So I find, I find this very encouraging. I find it challenging that I sit in my very comfortable. Formerly, you know, my living room used to be a carport. My ex-carport, now living room, is very awesome. You can recline in four different chairs. Well, the ends of the couch on two ends and two different chairs. You can get laid back in that place in about any kind of position you want. And I often use that as my pulpit for complaint. I sort of sit there at home and just think about all that I don't have. And here's Paul extolling the virtues of Christ from a prison cell. And as I've been studying the book of Colossians, uh, I endeavored in, in December to read it three times a day. I have been mightily convicted. I did most of that sitting in one of those recliners. I sit in the red recliner a while, then I go to the brown recliner. Then I'd get over in the other red recliner, then I go back to the brown recliner and see a man who is getting a vision for Jesus from a prison is mighty convicting. Another thing I hope you'll remember as we go through this letter, and trust me, we'll get to reading some of it in a moment, is that it wasn't the place, it wasn't prison that made Paul focus on Christ, nor was prison able to make Paul stop focusing on Christ. I think what we get is a spirit-filled man. In other words, if the Spirit's got a hold of you, you're going to preach Christ no matter your circumstances. And that might be a lesson for us too. This might sort of help us identify that the Spirit doesn't have hold to me. How do I know? Because instead of speaking Christ from my circumstances, I'm moaning and complaining or lamenting and worrying. Whatever your position is, this is what I'm doing. Oh, man, that's revealing to me that I'm not being spirit-filled. Whoa, this is convicting. Another thing that I hope we'll be able to see is that what he really wants us to do is to see Jesus exactly for what he is, for who he is. And he gives it to us in a very power-packed, short area in uh, a chapter and a half. Uh, and then he tells us, get out there and live that stuff. Uh, I, I, I read somewhere, and I, I, it was, I don't know who to credit it to. I heard it from uh, a preacher, and he was quoting someone else. He said this, it has been said that if you want to understand the true nature of Jesus Christ, you should study the first chapter of John's gospel, the 19th chapter of Revelation, and the book of Colossians. And if you have those three under your belt, you will have a solid understanding of who Jesus is, 
and what he desires to do in our world today. And I think this rings true. If you want to get a broader understanding of Colossians, read Ephesians. And if you want to get a broader understanding of Ephesians, read Romans. And if you want to get a broader understanding of Romans, read the whole Bible. And what the message of all of them is, is this. Jesus is Lord of all. He is above all, before all, better than all. Jesus is supreme. Over the next few weeks, and it'll be just a few weeks, we will endeavor to promote Jesus as supreme and to so center him in your vision and in your heart that indeed it will change the way you think, the way you speak, the way you relate to others, and the way you relate to the world. And so let me say, East Rock Community Church, whether you're gathered here in the room tonight or you're there on Facebook, we are praying as, as the elders, as the, as the teaching leaders of this church, as those who ascend to this frightful pul pulpit, we are endeavoring to call you to see Jesus so clearly, to submit to him so thoroughly that it will absolutely change everything about your life. Can, can we together embrace that journey? Uh, just just a few moments ago, Clay, as you were leading us to, to sing that prayer, Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary. I don't know whether you were nervous, but I tell you what I sensed. I sensed that you were you had some Holy Spirit frightfulness to think about what that means. Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true. Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary. You can do anything you want to in and through me. That's frightful. That's terrifying. Colossians is an invitation to find the best, even though he'll change the rest. And over the past 30-some days now, I have, uh, I mean, you do the math, I have read this book about 100 times. And what I'm seeing is he's worthy, and I'm scared. He's worthy, and this is frightening. But he's sort of like that, you know, that little, that little line in, in the Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, and they start talking about, Aslan, what do they say about it? Does anybody know? They said, uh, huh? Yeah, he's scary. He's frightful, but he's good. That's what I see in Jesus. To walk with Jesus is terrifying. But guess what? It's good. Would you join me as I read the first eight verses in Colossians and then give a little more introductory thoughts? And trust me, the introduction will be longer than the sermon. Hang in there and get hit right between the eyes with a, ham with a hammer tonight. Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse number 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Verse 3. We always thank God the Father our Lord, of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you. And as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to you, made known to us your love in the spirit. Father, as we open this word, open our minds to understand and our hearts to seek Christ there as king. In Jesus, I pray, amen and amen.
All right, let me throw this quick graphic up here. Can anybody finish that? Measure twice, cut once. Wow, Carson, you were like a gunslinger right there. You, All right. Indeed, he's right. Measure twice, cut once. That's what it says. Uh, I, I want to introduce you to a really big thing, and it's, it might be some new words and kind of churchy words, and I want to couch it in these terms. Measure twice, cut once. To me, that is the easiest way to explain something called orthodoxy and orthopraxy. If I were to think about the book of Colossians, I would say look at it in these terms. First orthodoxy, then orthopraxy. Let me see if I can put those words in some Tim Bowes terms. Orthodoxy is right thinking. It is, it is trusted, tried, biblical thinking. It is right doctrine. And don't let doctrine scare you. Don't even let words like dogma scare you. It just means accepted, long-held, trusted, and tried biblical teaching. Doctrine just means teaching. Dogma means the teaching that is held as correct. That's orthodoxy. Long-accepted thought on something. Long-accepted um moral truth you actually have orthodoxy in all of your different disciplines and practices my friend will bailey's over here will you'll be learning orthodox methods of flight in other words what a lot of people who've been flying planes for 120 years say you should always do this and you should never do that and they'll expect you if you don't want to crash your plane in the middle of a field somewhere to have orthopraxy the sort of moral and ethical practices that put moral and ethical, sensible teachings into practice. Orthodoxy, then orthopraxy. Well, here's what I would tell you. The book of Colossians say, you better measure twice and cut once. You know why? Because you want to know that you believe the right thing, and then when you do something, you want to make sure you've done the right thing. The problem is you can think for a long time before you do, but once you've done, you've done, and it's hard to undo what you've done done. What's happened in Colossae is they've run into error. We don't know if Paul ever went to Colossae. It seems he didn't, but we know this. He had led Epaphras to the Lord. Epaphras had come to the Lord at some point, had a personal relationship with Paul. The church there in that area had fallen into error. Epaphras had gone to Rome. He had sought counsel from Paul, said, Paul, this is what's going on. Would you send some instruction, some apostolic teaching? So Paul sends this letter back. And what does he do first? He says, let me tell you all first the right way to think. Let me give you the right view of Jesus. And then let me also instruct you on some right practice. I'll tell you, this is as relevant as anything we'll see in the scriptures. Because here's what happens to the church. If we don't have right thinking on Jesus, we won't have right behavior to follow Jesus. However, if you have right thinking on Jesus, you might not always have right following. In other words, a lot of people know the right words. They don't have the right deeds. So you know what you need to do? Measure twice and cut once. Better make sure you're thinking right and then check it again and then do right. Amen. And we see this all over the place. And that's what, if I were going to 
sum up this book in a few words. And Christina, me and Casey were talking about before. That was my challenge. I, I don't have many sleepless nights when it comes to preaching, but I did last night. Because there is a ton to say about this book. And I boiled it down to this. First, orthodoxy, then orthopraxy. What we're going to do over the next few weeks is as we unfold the scriptures, we're going to uphold a great view of Jesus, and then we're going to challenge you to let the true view of Jesus change everything in your life. Practice knowing Jesus well. And here's what I want to say about the moment. The moment. You know, you could get tested for this stinking COVID-19 tomorrow and leave the office, and the next thing you touch, you get the, the cooties. Y'all know that? Have y'all come to grips with the fact that this thing is hitting everybody really different? Some people have absolutely no symptoms and some people die. Y'all notice that? And so it seems to me that you still have to jump out of the plane. In other words, there's no avoiding the danger of living in these days. Everybody, you're on the plane and everybody's got to get out halfway through the trip. Everybody's got to jump out of the plane. And it also seems to me the height of stupidity, yes, I said that strong word from the pulpit, it seems to me to be the height of stupidity to jump out without a parachute. Did I just use logic? Yes, I did. Everybody's got to jump. It's crazy to jump without a parachute. What does that mean? That means you better develop some wise and very particular and personal habits in these days. And you still better be ready to meet your maker. Did I say that that strongly? Did I? Was I pretty clear? And if you're not ready to meet your maker, that's the greater tragedy. The greater tragedy is not dying from something. Because guess what? Everybody's got to jump out the plane. The greater tragedy is jumping out the plane, not prepared to jump out the plane. Now, I'm an old airborne ranger. Hello? Who? Cool. You better get your shoot, son. Everybody's got to jump. Why collisions right now? It's this simple. What East Rock Community Church needs, what every saint and every sinner absolutely needs is fresh wind, fresh fire, and complete focus on Jesus. Because in the end, not everybody's going to catch corona. Not everybody that catches corona is going to die. But everybody's going to die and everybody's going to stand before God. And the only safety is Jesus. The only sanity as we wait to meet him is Jesus. The only eternal safety is Jesus. The only temporal sanity is Jesus. So why preach Colossians right now? Because Sarah, guess what? You need Jesus. Ray, guess what? You need Jesus. Rob, newsflash. You need Jesus. Carolyn? What? You need Jesus. David? <laughs> Grant? Kayla? Troy? Tim? Tim needs Jesus. If I didn't call your name, if you're out there in Facebook world, guess what? And here's what I'm baking on. I believe Jesus is so good that if we ever get him for real, we won't have any regrets about having gotten him. And whatever we gain because we got him, we'll be happy about. And whatever he kicks to the curb because of him, we'll be happy to have let to go. Now, 
with that long introduction, first orthodoxy, then orthopraxy, give me a few moments to unfold these verses. First, Paul's communication is soaked in genuine gratitude. Well, actually, I skipped over his greeting. His greeting has a purpose. I want you guys to see this. When's the last time you wrote a letter and you said, I'm writing you this letter as a person who's called by God? When's the last time you wrote a letter that says, I'm writing you this letter as a person who's called by God and who's doing it in community? When's the last time you wrote a letter? In other words, Paul, an apostle called by Christ Jesus with Timothy. I'm writing you this letter as a person who wants, I'm skipping to verse 3, who wants the unmerited favor of God for you. When's the last time you signed a letter like that? Carrie, nice, nice uh, talking to you over Christmas, great visit. Signed, I want the absolute unmerited favor for you from God. Tell me. I haven't written a letter like that in a long time. But Paul does. I want unmerited favor for you. What if, what if you sent out your bills this month and you put a little handwritten note? Here's my payment for my gas. You charge too much. I still want the unmerited favor of God for you. I want you to have peace from God, with God, and with others. That's the way Paul writes. His greeting has a purpose. He's preaching, wishing well, wanting good. And in the middle of that, I want you to notice who he's writing to, the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Saints. You think that's some old Roman Catholic thing, some Greek Orthodox thing. You're supposed to be tall, skinny, wearing a funny hat and going, you know, something weird, right? No. A saint is anyone in Christ. You're not common. Austin, what's your favorite thing to eat in a bowl? Mine too, cereal. He was like a deer in headlights. All right. Austin, do you have a dog? Do you feed the dog in the bowl and then go put the cereal in it? We used to feed our dogs in hubcaps. People would lose hubcaps and we'd turn them into, yeah. They're great dog feeders, right? You seem appalled. They didn't mind at all. They was like, oh, look, we're having the silver out tonight, you know. Right? Everybody understands. Everybody gets this. You generally don't feed the dog and the baby out of the same bowl. In that same way, you know what God does? When you're in Christ, he sets you apart and you said, you are eternally not common. You're set apart. You're different. And the different designation didn't come from you because a bowl's a bowl. You decide what to do with the bowl. God says, I set you apart. You are now a saint. You're mine. You're different. You're eternally different than everybody else. What God wants you to do is to see your eternal positioning. He wants to see you operating that in a temporal way. I'm not like the rest of this mess around me. I'm not supposed to behave like the rest of this mess around me. I'm not supposed to submit myself to the same common uses. I'm something different. So that's who he's writing to, people who are set apart. And when he gets into their behavior, what he's going to attack it from is their position. He's going to say, behave differently because you're thought of differently. Like I've said to my kids, I've gotten on my kids when other kids were doing the exact same thing they were doing, and I didn't get on those kids, and my kids knew I got on them. Why? Because they mine. If you was raised anything like I was, it's likely you heard that line, I brought you into this world, and I can take you out. I've heard that line. 
God says, you are special. You are different. You're operating different. You're thinking different. You're related to things different. And it's not because you chose it. It's because I set you apart and I'm training you into what I'm gifting you for. This is no common greeting. It has purpose. Secondly, I tried to get out of order. Paul's communication is soaked in genuine gratitude. Go back and look at verses 3 through 8. Open your Bibles. Look at it. Click in your Bibles. Turn in your Bibles. Whatever you got to do. Look at these stuff very quickly with me. Even though Paul follows a very traditional letter format of the day, and this was very common, well-wishing, thanksgiving, even pagans did this. You can find plenty of letter evidence. This is exactly how pagans wrote. Paul takes this custom of the day and uses it distinctively in a Christian way. And I would say this is a challenge all of us face. We take the customs of our day and use them in a distinctively Christian way. That's a great example. He thanks God for the work of the gospel in the Colossians. He doesn't thank them. He doesn't tell them to go and make offerings to their God. He makes an offering to his God because he, see, he sees that it's his God who's done the work. And so it's soaked in genuine gratitude to God. Look at this very quickly. Notice Paul's gratitude for the reach of the gospel. Look at that in, in, in the second part of verse number five, okay? He says, it's come to you, which has come to you. The gospel has reached you. He knows that the gospel started on a hill on Calvary. The, the Holy Ghost fell on them. The Holy Ghost fell on them. And, and because when the Spirit came, the Spirit sent people out. The Spirit landed on people. And, and like the church that became the, the church in Samaria, those folks got the Spirit at, 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 at Pentecost, and they took it back home. And, and, and he knows that the, that the gospel's been going out because God has been compelling people to go share. He says, wow, I'm just thankful that the gospel has reached you. And he's thankful that the gospel not only has reached them, but that the gospel has produced results in them. What results is he thankful for? I want you to notice Paul's gratitude for the results of the gospel. He thanks, for, he thanks God for three very specific and encouraging things. Number one he thanks God for the faith of the Colossians. Look back at verse 4. He says, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. You see that? Faith is the act of placing your trust and confidence in something or someone else. You know, um, we got these wooden chairs in my kitchen. And uh, if something is right in the front. Now, Clay, you, Clay you've been in my kitchen uh, you could probably just touch your ceiling, no problem. I, I, I can't even jump and touch the ceiling, you know. But if something's right on the front of the, the top cabinet, you know, I can reach it. But if it's just a little back, I got to get one of these chairs. Well, Kara is always asking me. She says, go get my steps. That's what, she's got these little steps. She pull them out. Well, I don't go get them. Let me tell you why, because I've read the label. It says up to 300 pounds. See, I don't have no faith. Those steps weren't made for me. What I do is get those wooden chairs. There ain't no writing on them, but they're a whole lot stronger than those little metal steps. See? What they have discovered is that Christ is something, someone who can be trusted. Trusted for what? Trusted to escape hell. Trusted to enter heaven, trusted to grant new life, trusted to follow, trusted to give purpose. They have discovered faith in Christ, and they apply trust in Christ in the areas of their life. 
Now we're going to see the Colossians aren't perfect in this. But they've trusted him for salvation. They're beginning to trust him for sanctification. So Paul says, I thank you that you guys, you guys have faith in Christ. We're often tempted to trust in all sorts of things. You guys know what we're really trying to trust in these days? Physical security. So how many churches are flat out closed because they value they value living more than they do Jesus? And, and, and I don't mean, I, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not being mean, and I don't mean to be trite. But some people are more worried that they're going to get sick than they, gonna, than they are worried they're going to disobey God. And I know there's times you got to stay home. If you guys think I'm demeaning that, I'm just talking about this general attitude that you stop all your faith till you wait till a sickness passes. You don't stop all your faith for nothing. Now, again, if you're jumping out of the plane, you're not supposed to be an idiot. I'm not talking about being senseless, but I'm also not talking about being faithless. About some people trusting money. They're only happy when they feel like they got enough to situate life in the way they envision it. If it took money to be a good Christian, then all the poor people wouldn't, could never be saved. It takes Jesus to be a Christian, so poor people can be saved. Amen. How about the people that trust their own morality? How about the people that trust their own ideas of fairness and justice, their own ideas of how to do religion in a way to please God? Faith in Jesus is radical. Secondly, secondly, Paul's gratitude for the results of the gospel was not only in their faith, but it was also in their love. You know the people of God are supposed to love everybody? Did y'all know that? And that does not mean we have fuzzy, warm emotions for everybody. It doesn't. It means we do benevolent, sacrificial care for others, whether we feel good about it or not. As those who are in Christ, we, the reality is that it should be evident in the way we love. Not only that, but he saw hope in the Colossians. The result of the gospel was they had hope. Look at verse 5 real quick. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. As we look at the volatility of the world around us, as we look at how the world is absolutely full of uncertainty, as we look at our own situations, it is totally easy to despair. As Christians, we have to remember that this life isn't all that there is. This isn't all that there is. You ever thought about that? This isn't all that there is. We got a true, eager expectation that life holds more for us in heaven. Now, brothers and sisters, what I find most encouraging personally about this is that the gospel bore fruit. I want to see the gospel bear fruit at East Rock Community Church. I was reading several sermons and commentaries and things on this passage, and one of them came to me from a guy who had been a missionary in South Africa for a long time. I'd never heard of him before. I was uh, studying all these free resources on this website, and I was reading some of his, and it was obvious they had made PDFs out of these old typewritten sermons, and he made up a word. He called it fructifying. And it made me think, uh, Bill and Angela gave, gave some of us, at, at my life, well, all of us at My Life Matters, um, a very old-fashioned gift. And I, You know, this is a compliment. Hang on. If it sounds like I'm putting you down, hang on. And me and Bill were commenting how when you were kids, 
you know, it was really neat to get that brown bag, and it always had oranges in it. Y'all remember that? Anybody remember that? Size? Oranges and peppermint were the mainstays. Uh, I used to love it because uh, we would get one and have BB bats in them, little chewy candies, and they were some of my favorites. You know, I love to eat the candy and chew the stick, little paper stick up. Me and Bill remarked how when we were younger, you just didn't, you couldn't go in the store anytime you wanted to and get lemons and limes and oranges. That's why it was such a treat. When they were around here, you got some. And, that, and you know, that was a real genuine treat back in the day. And now we're just like oranges. Well, you know, we can get oranges any old time. Well, you can't get oranges from Bill any old time. But you know what's happened to our grocery stores? Our grocery stores have been fructified. In other words, you can go in there year-round and get any kind of fruit nearby. In other words, fruit has proliferated our markets around the world, and you can expect to get fruit in the old time. You know what I want to see? Because of East Rock Community Church, through East Rock Community Church, I want to see Roxborough and Person County get fructified. I want, through our people, for this town to get the ex expectation of year-round Christ-likeness. A proliferation of the Spirit of Christ in every community through the people of God. Here's a grove of fruit trees right here. And I want to see us fructify. I stole that word from Richard Sachs. That was his name. I want to see Person County fructified. I want to see what Paul is being grateful for is that the gospel has landed, taken root, borne fruit, and increased. I want to see Person County fructified. Two invitations as we close. Invitation number one, to you believers. If prison was Paul's pulpit, if it was his lecture hall, if it was his mentoring facility, if he did not allow his circumstances to blind his view of Christ, then I pray, brothers and sisters, you would consider not allowing the circumstances of the day to blind your view of Christ. I'm not asking you to grit your teeth, but I'm asking you to ask God for the radical thing. Give me the Holy Spirit in such a degree that I see Jesus for just who he is. Believers, ask God to show you Jesus in a way that will lead you to bear fruit. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because of the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. I want to see the sort of fruit that makes us unashamed to be his witnesses. Now, to anybody who might be sitting in the room, to anybody who might be listening online, I also want to give a gospel invitation to those who don't believe. This passage actually shares the gospel with us. It, it tells us that the gospel is personal. It says, since the day you heard it. The gospel is not private, but it is personal. You have to respond to Jesus. Each person has to see that they are a sinner, deserving of judgment, headed for eternal separation, and they have to see that Jesus' blood pays the debt of our sin. Jesus' life conquers the enemy of death. Jesus is the answer to our deepest need and our deepest problem, and you have to come to that personally. And not only that, you have to see it's an act of grace. That's what he says here. He comes to grace in all its truth in verse number 6. Grace, uh, the grace of God in truth. He offers salvation to anyone who will believe. Believe that Jesus stood in their place. Believe that Jesus' power can raise them from the dead. In Ephesians chapter 2, the Bible says, It's by grace you have been saved through faith, 
And this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. It's not how good we are, how many good works we've done. It's not by how sincere we are. It is by the blood of Jesus. Paul writes to the Colossians to remind them of the centrality and the supremacy of Christ and to help them understand how their position in Christ should change the way they think, speak, relate to others, and see the world. Orthodoxy to orthopraxy. My closing question to all is this. Where is Jesus' place in your life? He could be given lots of titles in my life. Best friend. Boss. He's the boss. You ever thought about Jesus being your boss? Like all day, every day? You ever thought about Jesus literally being your savior? And not just in some distant future when you're dead, but saving you from the works of Satan, from the brokenness of flesh from the foolishness of bad company. Could you see Jesus as saving you day to day, moment to moment? It's a wild thought. Do you see him? Do you see him as your lawyer? Now, I've been to court a lot. I can tell you all the value of a good lawyer. Hmm. Well, he's always pleading our case in eternity's court. Can you see him as the one who sends all of your, your, you know, your coworkers, in other words, he sends the Holy Ghost and he sends the body of Christ. He is the sending agent. Can you see him as the one who's got the, your best interest at heart? Between he and the Holy Spirit, when we don't even know what to say, he says it for us. Isn't that cool? On and on and on. How you see Christ and how you see him moment to moment will direct how you live for him. Brothers and sisters, how do you see Christ today? I pray as we study through Colossians, that God will give us a true vision of Christ and it will change everything. Father, thank you for a chance to preach your word. Or maybe maybe the feebleness of preaching is happening tonight. Maybe that's what's going on. But I know nothing can diminish the power of the Holy Ghost. So I pray, Father, that we see that your unmerited favor is our only hope. I pray that we see that walking with Jesus is the best identifier for our lives. I pray that we begin to see Jesus tonight, high and lifted up, ruling, reigning supreme, worthy of our worship, worthy of our devotion. And that he takes up a central place in our thinking, and in our loving. Touch East Rock, East Rock Community Church over the next few weeks and give us a bold vision for Jesus. In Christ I pray, amen. Can we stand together and sing? What are we going to sing, Clay? Woo, this is a prayer. Can I talk about this? This is a prayer, all right? And I, and I challenge you guys, if you've never sung this, to read it. Hold off on the first go around. Because what you're saying is, Holy Ghost, come witness the good news of Jesus to me. And you're literally asking the Holy Spirit to preach to your heart. And if you can, pre if you can sing that tonight, if you can sing that and pray that, then let it.